This week has been an interesting one, to say the least. Many things were planned and went according to plan. Many moments happened that were not a part of anyone's plans, that were unexpected. But in the midst of it all, whether highs or lows, whether through joy or tears, we've seen God's love displayed in mighty ways. We've seen His ability to calm fears, to give hope, to show us joy and peace, but mostly love. That His kindness is near and dear to us and and has a victory over the greatest of defeats. Today we're going to be talking about that love as we've been going through this time of Advent and talking about the gifts that God gives to us, those including hope and peace and joy and love, well, it's just natural that we would speak about it. Eventually, you're going to get around to it. And we've been going through the book of Isaiah and looking at these these foretold promises that were given to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, but not only to them, promises that would echo that would spread like crazy around the world to peoples of every tribe, nation, and tongue. A promise that was good, that God had not forsaken us, but He had brought a way to fulfill that which He told us, even at the fall, that one day one would come, and though the enemy would strike his heel, he would crush his head. And he would do it through the overwhelming power and victory of His love and compassion on full display. So today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 52-53. through 53. We're going to be looking at a unique place about love. Because when we talk about who God is, love is a natural overflow of His character. It is said in the Scripture in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. Now that is not to be confused that love is God. The emotion is not God, but out of God flows an omnibenevolence, an all-loving God displayed out of His holiness. But love, as we know, does come from a heart and a character of a person, but love without actions love without deed, love without display and demonstration, we would say is mere words. That's just talk. But when we see it on display, when we see the element of sacrifice or suffering and the willingness to stand by someone, we see that loyalty and love and compassion and willingness to lay down themselves for the betterment of another, well, then we see that love is not just talk. We see that what is in the, on the character of a person and what is in the words of the person is actually done in the provision and the hands and the direction of the person. Over these last few weeks, we've been asking the question, when we tend to think about Christmas songs like, O come all you faithful, it says, O come let us adore Him who is Christ the Lord. You know, people may ask, why should we make such an emphasis on Jesus? There is a push in our culture today to to kind of move Christmas away from the emphasis that it originated from to just being good for goodness sake, for goodwill towards mankind. The only problem is 
that goodwill has to come from somewhere. And naturally, we just don't really have too much of a love and kindness for all mankind. We love those like us. We love those that have similarities to us, that have similar interests to us. We have a natural tendency to love people and connect with people that have children the same age as ours, that go to the same school districts. But the people that we don't know, how can we love them? There's got to be something bigger that causes that. And that comes from who God is and what He does. And today we're going to see what the Scripture does to reveal this gift of love and why it calls us, why it moves us to a greater adoration of Jesus. That our adoring of Jesus is based on who He is, but it's also in what He does. So today let's look at this love of Christ that is a love like no other. Would you stand with me as we read verse 13 and following into chapter 53 of Isaiah. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and would like to use one of the Pew Bibles, it is page 650. Um, and, and once again, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can really, really understand, take that Bible that's in the pew. It's our gift to us. It's our great pleasure to put it in your hands. But ultimately, we hope it gets into your heart. It's in page 650 in, in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 52, verses 13 and following into chapter 53. The prophet, inspired by God, is declaring these words. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of Him. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at Him. No appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value Him. Yet He Himself bore our sicknesses. And He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded Him stricken. Struck down by God and afflicted. But He was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on Him, and we are healed by His wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished Him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open His mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered His fate? For He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of My people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but He was with the rich man in His death because He had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. 
When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hands, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. Help us to know you, to understand you. And God, I pray in this moment you would use me to hide me behind the shadow of your cross, to move through your Holy Spirit, to speak to us, to teach us what we need to know about who you are, what you've done, and what you've told us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, each week when we come to a portion of Scripture to try to gain some understanding about it, we talk about the author and the audience and the aim. And the author here is the prophet Isaiah. He's a a prophet of God. A prophet was someone who God called and gifted them to declare His Word verbatim to the people of the nations. And at times, these prophets would not only declare what was happening in the moment, but what would be foretold about what was ahead based on those moments and based on what God had already done. They were never called to speak something that was out of line with God's character, out of line with God's will, or that was self-centered and self-focused. It was all about God's pleasure, God's will, God's purposes. And here in this time, Isaiah is in a tumultuous time, we've talked about that, in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah around uh, mid-700 B.C. So 700 years before Christ ever walked the earth. The people of Israel uh, have put on a, an activity that looks religious. It's a lot of religiosity. Looking very spiritual, and yet their lives not always falling in line. In other words, they were doing the right rituals, they were performing the right ceremonies, they had the right look, but in their lives there was not an actual love for God. There was not an actual righteousness that was pursuing Him and how He had delivered His Word, His law to the people. And God pretty much tells the prophet Isaiah to tell him. Stop this senseless trampling of my course. Stop all these crazy activities. What I want you to do is come to me. Come to see my grace. Let us reason together. For though your sins be like scarlet, I shall make them white like snow. Though they are like red like crimson, I will make them like wool. He was telling them that they needed to come to Him to reconcile their rebellion because what they were doing was depending on their own rituals to make them righteous instead of the righteous one to make them righteous. But in the middle of all this, in the middle of Isaiah being called by God to tell them about their rebellion and what was the consequence, he also told them about God's provision. That God had established a promise and that promise was not voided because of our chaos, because of our disobedience. That in in God's incredible, incredible providence and His incredible ability to overcome anything, God was still going to fulfill His provision. He was still going to provide His promise. He was going to deliver on that which He had said He would. Why? Because nothing 
Nothing, nothing can detour the plans of God. And nothing can diminish the love of God. Nothing. Because God's love is a love like no other. It's not a love that's built on circumstances. It's not a love that's built on conditions. Yesterday we saw a beautiful commitment of two people placing themselves in covenant with one another. The covenant of marriage. We're being reminded that the love that is meant to be displayed in the marriage is a love that gives and and it cleanses and it it exalts. It places the other person at the forefront. This is a love that is similar to Christ. But what we see in the promise of God when we read the book of Isaiah, when we hear these words, we see a promise that if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's beautiful, but it's uncomfortable. Do you get that? When you hear those words that we just read a minute ago, man, they're beautiful. We loved hearing them at Easter, but at Christmas, that's a little uncomfortable. That's a little difficult because there's a lot of death. There's a lot of wounds. There's a lot of suffering and pain. Why would Jesus do that? Why would that be the promise? Why can't it just be all goodness for goodness sake? Because a price had to be paid so that love would be displayed. A love like no other. And so today, as we look through this particular text and we ask, what does it mean? How does it apply? And what am I going to do about it? I'm going to present a few love lessons, if you will. Now, not that I'm an expert on love. My wife will tell you I'm not. There are times I don't get it right. But, The Bible has given us some lessons that we all need to hear. It has given us the truth in our time of need. That there are lessons that we can learn from God about love. Particularly His love. And the first lesson that we find about the love of Christ, the love that is like no other, is that His love astounds. It's astounding. It's not some sentimental Valentino type love. This is not some weird, dark teen drama on a movie screen type love. This is a love that is absolutely astounding. It's phenomenal. It is befuddling. It is mind-blowing. Because love in our context says that it's got to make you feel good and, and, and make you happy and be about joy. But the love of God astounds because it is indeed successful. It is so successful that it says that this servant, this one that was sent, who is God, wrapping himself in the flesh only to pay the price for us, is one that will be successful. He will be raised. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exhausted. So here's the good news. When God tells us about his love, he says, now it's going to go through some pain, but I want you to know at the head start, at the very beginning, it will not be destroyed. It will go through pain, but it will not be destroyed. It will be successful. It's astounding to know that no matter what, whenever Jesus knew everything that was coming for Him, He also knew that He would not be able to abstain from pain, but He will be able to look behind it. To see the success. This victory would not be taken away. And it will be successful. But the thing is about it being successful, it is also submissive. That Jesus, who is the glorious, almighty God, 
putting on flesh would take a beating, would take agony and pain so bad that his appearance was so disfigured that he did not even look like a man anymore. Each year I try to watch the 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ. I, I try to go through that and watch it every year. So as a reminder, I remember the first time I saw it and leaving the, the theater in, in stunning silence. It's the first time I think I ever walked out of a movie theater and like no one said anything. It was just crickets. But even then, even in the characters on the screen getting pummeled and beaten and all the, the makeup that looked like just utter abuse, when I see this promise of the Scripture, I, I, I think it only catches a glimpse of it. It doesn't even catch the full gore of what Jesus was willing to go through to face the cross for us. And He submitted to it. He submitted to it. On that night before He went to the cross, knowing that His full love needed to be on display, He even asked in praying, this is a proof of the Trinity, by the way, praying to His Father, if this cup cannot pass from Me, nevertheless, not My will, but Your will. Please let it pass, but... Nevertheless, I'm submitting to your plan. If this is the full display of your glory and your compassion, I will take it. The glorious God, pummeled for the fact that He didn't even look like a human being. But in doing so, when it would look like the craziest of defeats, the ugliest of brutality, we see that His love is astounding not only because it's successful and it's submissive, but it's also surprising because in doing so, in being that guilt offering, He sprinkles many nations. And it says that because of His victory, it says kings will shut their mouths because of Him. So I have to go you know, take that little draw drop thing. And just, you ever had that moment where you're just astounded and someone's like, close your mouth, come on. This is because of Him. Why? Because they'll see something that had not been told and they'll understand what they had not heard. And even though the, the, the Scripture had spoken about a glorious victory and that death and decay would not contain God's anointed one, the fact of them taking it literal blew their minds. And that's the part of the Scripture that sometimes we'll read something and you'll be like, oh God, you didn't mean that metaphorically or figuratively. You meant that literally. I'm supposed to do that? Shut your mouth, yes. Because God can take something that looks so overwhelming and He can overcome through it. Love astounds. Another lesson is that love announces. Love announces something. It announces a message of faith. Prophet Isaiah says, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is not a message that is meant just to be like, all right, pass the news and then just let it go by. It's a message to be received by faith. It's a message to bank your life on, to trust and submit your life to. And it's going to require faith. Not because the evidence is not there. I would submit to you that the evidence, that the historical presentation of Christianity is completely true in all that it presents. But because it's so phenomenal 
that God would make us righteous simply by us placing our trust in Him. Because everything else that was going on in the book of Isaiah was them trying to manufacture their own works, do their own rituals, try to make themselves look good, trample the feet, stomp the yard, make it sound good, make it look good. But God is saying, I'm asking you to believe my message. What I have told you to simply trust in me and to trust in what I am doing. And in that message, you will find not only a message of faith that requires trust, but a message that has foundation that God has been moving the earth in its place just to bring His righteousness and His redemption. And this is not some fly-by-the-night, seat-of-the-pants message. This is one established from the beginning of the ages and brought about by God's hands. And He worked out human history to bring this about. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And though He came out of very humble beginnings, a root out of dry ground, and didn't have that impressive form or majesty that we should look at Him, I do think it's funny how we try to paint a very soft, very model-esque look of Jesus on pictures and figures. When it says that really, and honestly, He was not anybody that from His outward appearance was impressive. What was impressive was whenever he spoke with authority and they were like, whoa, that's a carpenter's kid. What was impressive was whenever a mighty work of his hands occurred and, and nature was suspended, the supernatural took hold, and they were like, whoa, did you believe that came out of that guy? Whenever he went into the temple and, and what they had been taught by law, but he saw these rituals and all these trampling of feet that was continuing on. He made reeds and he beat the snot out of some people. That was what astounded him. But his, his form, it wasn't anything that was model-esque. And he says that he was despised and rejected. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was someone that people actually turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Now there were people that saw Jesus. They saw His words and in, how he talked with authority. They saw him bringing the miraculous about. They saw him reforming the, the, the way the law was brought about and displayed. But they would still turn away. And then when Jesus took the ultimate penalty that would display the prize of his love, they definitely turned a blind eye. They definitely walked away. They just said, you know, it's none of my business. I don't want to get involved. And what they found was folly. They found the foolishness within them. As if God displaying His love to us is something that we don't need. And as if God displaying His love to us is something that we're going to be able to put in a nice, tidy little box. God's display of love was brutal and beautiful. And not to trust in it is foolishness. To turn away and despise Him and not value Him is the Bible warns against such foolishness, against such folly. Because the love of God is love like no other because it's astounding and it comes with an incredible announcement to build your life on faith, to see the firm foundation that God has brought about for your redemption and not to fall into the folly of looking to yourself for your salvation, but looking for the Savior who is the only one that provides it. Another lesson in love that we see that shows that God's love is a love like no other is that His love atones. His love makes right. His love reconciles. It restores that which was broken. 
What does it say through verses 4 through 12? It says that He bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in turn regard restriction. So love atones for the pain that we carry, that brokenness that's within us, that agony that we know that something's just not right. Here and here. So if there's something that's not right here, and there's something that's not right here, then something from out there has got to change what's out here and what's in here. And God shows His love in a way that atones for our pain, our brokenness. He carried them. He not only carried our pain and and atones for our pain, our brokenness, He atones for our punishment. Not only things broken, but we chose the brokenness. We chose the rebellion. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And it says that He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him. In other words, what God took was what we deserved. And He did it willingly. And in doing so, in atoning for our pain, and atoning for our punishment, we see He atones for our place. He places Himself where we are meant to be. By being that lamb going to the slaughter. But in doing so, what we see is Him taking our place. He being our atonement, our substitute. Jesus didn't die as a martyr and we look at Him as our hero. He died as our substitute. The one that where we should have been. Taking our place. We see He also brings about our prize. And when we look at the cross, yet yeah, it is a beautiful figure of brutality and beauty. But it's also a place of victory where death was its end. Pain was its goal. But God brought about destruction of death. And the prize being the victory. Jesus took our prize. Christmas time, we like to talk about the little baby and the, the manger scene and Mary and Joseph. And by the way, Mary totally knew. That song's a great song, but she totally knew. She knew that what would happen with this child would bring about the salvation of many. She didn't fully know how it would happen, but she knew. And we, at Christmas time, we can decorate things and celebrate the hope. Because the greatest of fears, the greatest of pains, the greatest of turmoil that comes from sin and death is overcome. And the prize is available because of the astounding, announcing, atoning love of God. So what is our response? I mean, what do we do with that? I mean, isn't that the question after all that's been talked about? What do we do with a God that loves us like that? What do we do with such a gift? How are we supposed to handle that? How are we supposed to walk out these doors and that impact our lives? How is that supposed to change how we intersect with our families and some that may be coming in this Christmas? How is that supposed to be displayed in our workplace or the places that God has, has placed us? Well, I think that we do with, with, we respond to this love with what it does for us. That we live first by being astounded. 
If you've ever gotten over being astounded by how much God loves for you, you need to return to your first love. You need to return to Him and just be in wonderment. God, how could You love me this much? And because You do, let it reflect in every area because that's where worship begins. When we are in awe and astounded by the love of God and our response to who He is is all about that. What is the response to live with such a great love? It's not only to be astounded and return to that, but be an announcer. Be announcing that love. That just as God announced it to us and freely gave it to us, that came with the privilege of freely passing it on to others. There's a reason God has placed you with the family you've got. Whether you think they're crazy nuts or not. It's your first and foremost mission field to announce to them the love of Christ. And there's no mistake about where God has placed you in your workplace. You may have angry bosses. You may have lazy bosses. You may have lazy subordinates. But guess what? God has leveraged you with the gifts, the skills, the experience, the personality for you to make an impact for such a time as this in such a place as that. To be an announcer. To talk about the activity of faith. That don't try to go through all these other things of fixing. It's about faith. And it's based on a foundation. And you've got to warn against the folly of trying to do things your own way. What do you do to respond with such a great love? Not only to be astounded by it and enraptured by it, but to be an announcer of it, but live in that atonement. And I know so many Christians, they walk around beat up because of their sin, because of their struggle. But guess what? Jesus already paid the bill. And He did it because He loves you. You know when you go to the restaurant, kiddos, and maybe you're an adult kiddo and your parents pay the bill? Isn't that good? Man, I love that. I know they did it, but not because they're trying to get something out of me. They did it because they love me. I don't owe them for that dinner. Or at least that shouldn't be the way you do it. If you're doing it, you're doing it wrong. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't pay this price so that we walk around gloomy and be like, what What am I going to do? He says, I've already taken your pain. I've already taken your punishment. I've already taken your place. And I've offered you the prize. Live as someone that's atoned for. I tell you, if you live that way, your struggle with sin will be a lot less. Because if you live with the pain of saying, oh, woe is me, then you say, well, I'm already messed up. I might as well do it again. But if you live with the knowledge that God has paid a a price for your prize, I'm going to tell you what, that sin looks a lot less tempting. Live as someone atoned for. But ultimately, be adoring. That's one of the reasons we celebrate this time. To come let us adore Him because of who He is and what He has done. Adore Him with what God has given you in your life to live fully for His glory in His grace and through His Gospel. What God did to you for us to display His love was in all of His holiness, in all of His character, in all His good, He created us to be with Him. But there's the problem of the offense of sin. 
And our sins can never be paid for by our own good deeds. They can't be paid by trampling around, looking good. Believe me, I don't look good, so I know I'd miss the mark. Who am I kidding? I look awesome. But it cannot be paid for by good deeds. Someone else has to pay the price. And Jesus willing to do that. One, because He's God and He's good and He's holy. But two, because He loves you like no one else ever will, ever can, and ever could. And that love changes. It presents a new opportunity. It presents a gift that is one of personal responsibility. What will I do with Jesus? I trust in Him the message of faith or I walk away and retain my message of foolishness. The Bible tells us for those that trust in Him, that those who received Him, those who believed in Him, He he gave them a blessing like another. They would be called children of God, adopted by the King, made clean, had His love shed for them and be full of life. And that life is not something that we wait for one day in heaven, although it will be a lot better day than this day. It is a life that changes everything in the here and now and our tomorrows. So let me ask you this. How are you responding to the gift of God's love? That's the question of our day. Now we're going to have a time of invitation and response. And to see what you do with just Jesus. Our musicians are going to make their way forward. I'm going to ask everybody to Close our eyes and bow their heads. In this moment, I have to ask you a question. I, I, I ask each week. Do you, as an individual, know the peace that comes from God? you know His love and salvation? Do you know the, His gift towards you? And because you know that, you have peace with God. One of the things we've been doing each week is we've been raising our hands whenever I ask, do you have peace with God as a way of testimony, a way of personal reminder for each and every person that each week we're reminded, God, were it not for Your grace, I would not be where I am. I would not have what I have. I would not have the promise that I hold dear to. It's that reminder that we praise God with. So I'm going to ask you that question again this week. Do you have peace with God. If that's you today, I want you to celebrate with me by uplifted hands and a way of praising the Lord that you have that peace that comes from Him. Amen, amen. When I ask that question, ultimately there's the other side of it. That there could be people in this room that do not yet have peace with God. Maybe that was you. You didn't raise your hand just that moment when I asked that question. And God has put a a reminder, maybe even a burden in your heart that that peace is not there. And if that's you today, I just want to pray for you. I want to tell you about the way to peace, but I want to pray for you first. I don't want to shun you. I don't want to shame you or make you feel guilty. But if you're in this room today and you're saying, Pastor, pray for me. I don't have peace with God. And I could use your prayer. Would you raise your hand? I just, every eye is closed, every head is bowed. Can I pray for you today? If that's you, would you raise your hand? I know that sometimes that question is not easy. Who wants to admit they're not right in this life? 
No one wants to admit they've got wrong or or in pain. I want to tell you this is a safe place. It's a loving place that wants to tell you the message of peace and love. And today, if that's you and, and you need that, that, that restoration, I can tell you what the Scripture tells you about how that restoration is made possible. First, it's by admitting your need for restoration. It's meeting your need for help. Like someone lost or drowning, calling out for aid. You admit the brokenness is real. You've seen it in your life. You've seen it in the world. And while you may not be able to do anything about the world right now, you can do something about your life. By first admitting your need for a Savior. The second is believing that Jesus is actually who He says He is. He's not some mythical figure. He's not some historical person from antiquity that's just there and, and gone. But He is, in fact, the very promised One of God. The Savior, the Lord, the Messiah, the King. The One who died for our sins and rose again and still lives today. Why is that important? Because if you don't believe He's alive today, if you don't believe He actually overcame the grave, then here's what you're saying. I don't believe He can do anything about my problem because He couldn't do anything about His. But the Bible says He did overcome. And He can overcome what's our situation as well. God not only understands, but He can do something about it. And you're believing that He is exactly who He says He is. And lastly, confessing Him as your Lord. That means confessing your sins and saying, God, I was wrong. I was lost, but I need You. I ask You to save me. I ask You to deliver me and help me follow after You as the Savior who saves, and the Lord who leads. And if you're ready to do that today and, and have never done that before, you can pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I admit I need You. I need a Savior. And I believe You are indeed the Savior and Lord, Messiah and King, that You really died and you rose again and you live even today as God Almighty. And I pray, I confess you as my Lord and Savior and ask you to forgive me of my sins and help me to follow you in faith. Save me and help me live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask one more question. If that was you today, that you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand? Every eye is still closed. Every head is bowed. Here's what I want to tell you. If that's you, the Bible says your next step is letting someone know. It may not necessarily mean walking this aisle, although this is a safe place and we would love to celebrate with you. But it does mean finding a family member who is also a follower of Christ, a friend who is a follower of Christ, and telling them about that decision that you have made. That way they can help you follow those next steps of what it means to grow in Christ, to grow through the Scriptures. So you can have that support and know that you are not alone. But as the music continues to play, we are also going to have the opportunity...
Should you, that not be your decision that you want to come and talk to me about the decision you made? Or maybe there's something else on your heart. Maybe it's uniting with this church and saying, I need to be a member planted in this church holding to the responsibility and accountability and encouragement of this people. Being a part of this family. We'd love to help you take those next steps to be in covenant with us. Maybe it's saying, I've never been scripturally baptized and I need to be. And I just need to take that step of obedience saying, where, where do I go from here? Maybe God is calling you somewhere or to do something as a disciple. Whatever it is, if you need prayer, counsel, support, I'm here at the front. You follow as God is leading you and speaking to your heart and soul this morning.